0: What I've been telling you. It's nothing like it seems. It's what I've been telling you. wrap up our series today, I am just so thankful, and I want to say a shout out again to the church who gave us all of this media package for this series, Picture Perfect Family. Uh, I contacted a church uh, that I had seen do this series about a year ago. Uh, The church's name is Church at the Springs. It's somewhere in Florida. I haven't looked up specifically where all of their campuses are, but they in 24 hours returned my phone call that I just, you know, made off their website, and and they said, uh, absolutely, you can have whatever you need, and if you ever need anything else, uh, just let us know, we'd be happy to help. So, church, can we show our appreciation for the the, uh, church at the Springs? Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, Cheer and chat, we'd love to have you do that, we're just so thankful. Uh, You can Google them, it's church, the ampersand sign, and the at sign, and at the Springs. That's it. So you can Google that. You can find them. Uh, They come up really quickly, and you can check them out. I'd encourage you to do that. So let's get a little bit of a recap as we end today. We learned that the reason for the series is that we understand that nobody has a picture-perfect family, right? Families often don't quite work out the way that we expect them to, but that's not always a bad thing. God can provide a way for us to have the perfect family that we need throughout the course of our lives. So, how does that work? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we learned that we forge the best future for our family when we walk in faith that God will answer and deliver on His promises. We forge our family's future when we live by faith in the promises that God has made. And since we're in the congratulatory mood, why don't we show again our appreciation to Krista who is worship leading my wife. Uh, She co-preached on that first Sunday and was more than willing to talk about her family, my family, our family uh, together as we talked about how no family is really perfect. Last week, we learned that all families fight, but any family can solve conflict in a godly way. And the way that we solve conflict in a godly way is that we need to seek to understand our family members before seeking to be understood by our family members. How they feel, what they're thinking, and why matters. And we help solve those conflicts in a godly way when we fight for our families rather than fight with them. In other words, we build them up rather than tear them down. And when we do that, we become someone who our families don't pull away from, but instead they find someone that they can draw close to and hold on to in difficult times. And today we're finishing off with, I think, something that happens to all families. We're talking about How families can stay close no matter what they are facing. Let's face it. When families break apart, when families drift apart, it's not just the family that suffers. Society suffers as well. We see this most clearly when husbands and wives end their marriages. When they get divorced, there has been over 40 years of research that has compiled a number of interesting observations, and they've had case study after case study after case study of seeing where this happens. And what they've seen is that the children that are growing up in that family when mom and dad divorce actually end up at incredible risk of harm in their lives. Children from divorced homes have a greater risk of suffering academically. They experience high levels of behavioral problems. Their grades suffer, and they're less likely to graduate from high school. Now, again, that's not a guarantee that that's going to happen. What it is, is that there's a greater risk that it will happen. Kids whose parents divorce are substantially more likely to be incarcerated for committing a crime as a juvenile. Because the custodial parents' income drops substantially after a divorce, children in divorced homes are almost five times more likely to live in poverty than than there are children who are in a uh, home with married parents. Teens from divorced homes are more likely to engage in drug and alcohol use and to experiment sexually than those who are from intact families. And before you say, oh, that, that would never happen to my kid, that would never happen to my family, remember that the children and teens represented in these statistics are normal kids, probably not much different than yours and mine. Their parents didn't think they would get involved in these things either, otherwise they wouldn't have gotten divorced in the first place. We're looking at increased risks. And families can drift apart without there being divorced, right? There can be an incredible rift in homes with people living together. I mean, let's be honest. When was the last time your whole family sat together in the same room and everyone was on a different screen? We call that Yesterday. It didn't take long. Somebody's watching the game on TV. Somebody's got their phone out on a video on. Somebody's got earbuds in and they're listening to something else. There's just this separation even though everyone's in the same room. Children who are born far apart, parents have uh, uh, children and they kind of get into their preteen and teenage years and maybe just, you know, heading off to college, uh, getting ready to spread their wings and fly, and all of a sudden there's a surprise that arrives. And there's a child who's super, super young in the home, and they're just in different phases of life. There can be a rift there because some kids are wondering, I need to study for my SATs and the other one is wondering, when is Wonder Pets on? That's what they want to know. And what's most interesting to me is that adult children relating to their parents has some incredible statistics on estrangement. There was a 2017 journal article, a peer literature review. And what that means is someone who's involved in uh, the Journal of Family Therapy and Review took all of the literature that's being written by experts and psychologists and sociologists on the topic of adult child parent estrangement and looked at all of what was written to come together and see some common themes. And here's what they noted, When adult children are estranged from their parents, there is usually a disagreement over the root of the problem. And this is how the root of the problem shows up. If you're an adult child, sorry, if you're a parent, what you see is that there's some form of external force that's breaking the family apart. Something has come in from the outside and forced them apart. Whereas the child says, actually, there's something internal. The adult children says there's something that happened in the family. So, for example, whereas parents are likely to attribute estrangement to, like, a child maintaining an objectionable relationship outside the family, children, adult children, are more likely to identify estrangement as driven by the personal negative characteristics of the parent, like the mother being self-controlled, self-centered, or something like that. So they find all of these research, uh, all of these articles, all of the things that have been written and run it through correlative, quantitative and qualitative studies in order to find out what are the commonalities, and they discovered something fascinating in this article. There's one commonality to every form of family drift, of families separating, of families moving apart. There's a form of stress, a circumstance, that is caused by an unmet expectation in the family. And it can be just one individual. It can be a number of individuals. But when unmet expectations come specifically from families and they don't get resolved in a healthy way, it automatically causes a rift. And the study, the the article went on to say that if you don't deal with this when the children are young you will have an exponentially difficult time to deal with this when the children are adults. So, here's an example of that. In, say, a family, an extended family, uh, one of the elder members receives a diagnosis of dementia. And the family comes together and says, how are we going to care for our senior family member? What are we going to do? It always turns out, that the women predominantly predominantly provide most of the care than the men. There is automatically an inequality in the caregiving duties and one person might be more responsible than someone else to take care of the family. And if the expectation becomes someone else should do more Someone else should be more helpful. Someone else should be more empathetic to what I'm going through as, say, the primary caregiver. It causes a rift. Now, what that means for us is simply this. The cause of the stress comes in our relationships in the family. And it comes from within us. There's an expectation that is not being met, that we expect another one of our family members to meet. I don't know if your family members always do exactly what you want them to do. Does that work? Does that, is that how that works in your family? Raise your hand if it doesn't work in your family, that your families don't always do what you expect them to do. Of course, that's absolutely true, right? You, you, know, this, you know this at home. You can agree. You can type that in chat. You know that that's not always the case. I have expectations of how we're gonna keep the house clean. And my family has an entirely different expectation of how we're going to do that. I want the kitchen to be spotless at all the time. It's not always the case. So what do we do? The good news is the Bible actually tells us how to deal with stressful situations and relationships. And it's when we take a look at the family that God built, which we're celebrating today, the day of Pentecost, Right? the day the Holy Spirit came and anointed those believers that were meeting in a room and the church was born. And all of a sudden, they started to speak in different languages communicating the truth of what Jesus had accomplished in His death and resurrection. They started preaching the gospel and people started to respond and surrender their lives. All because the Holy Spirit came and amplified the truth of their message. It's when we look at God's family, we see a truth that will help our family stay close, no matter what the unmet expectation is. And if you have a Bible with you, turn with me in them to John chapter 15. As you're turning there, let me give you a bit of a background of what's happening in John chapter 15. Jesus is teaching his disciples, but he's doing it in a particular context. He's actually Doing it at the last meal he would ever enjoy with them before he goes to the cross. This is the last supper. And when we think of the last supper, we normally think of communion, right? But Jesus taught a lot when he was at that last supper. He washed his disciples' feet. And he just finished that a couple of chapters before this in in, uh, in the Gospel of John. And he tells them, I'm going away. And I'm going away to die. Now, if you were there, is that a comfortable conversation or an uncomfortable conversation? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Thumbs up in chat, thumbs up, thumbs down in chat. What do you think? Is it a comfortable or uncomfortable conversation? Oh, this is uncomfortable. This is awkward. I remember when um, my father wanted to make sure that the kids all knew what to do as he approached his death. You see, he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and decided that he wasn't going to fight it with treatment. He was just going to um, pass away when the time came, and he knew that was probably a matter of weeks, months. And He gathered us all at my sister's home in the master bedroom, my sister, myself, my stepbrother, and then my dad, and he tried to talk about his own death this is what I want you to do. He had to leave the room because he broke down. It's uncomfortable when you have those kinds of conversations. What? Here's what I want you to do when I'm gone, is what Jesus is telling his disciples. So, Let's not think that this is just, you know, everybody's passing the nachos and the guac and they're having an extra cup of coffee and some extra cake and maybe some apple cider donuts and they're just chilling around the fire. This is awkward. This is a difficult conversation. And Jesus says, this is what you are to do when I'm gone, starting in verse 9. He says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. And I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Let's unpack this a little bit. What is Jesus telling His disciples? You do what I ask you to do, and you will be loved by me. You will remain in my love. You will stay that. You retain a good relationship with me. And just like Jesus had done this with God, his priority in life was doing what God had asked him to do, obeying God no matter what God asked him to do. He knew that he remained in the love of the Father, And it was a joyful obedience. It wasn't an obedience of duty. Because it brought him closer to his father. It brought him to a better relationship. So he says, do the same thing that I've done. In the same way that I have dedicated my life. Out of to obey my father. My heavenly father. I want you to do that. I want you to obey me. It will make me joyful. And it will give you joy. So... What does it mean, what is the command that Jesus gives His disciples? What is the command that He gives them in order to remain in His love? It's in verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Now, I want to just pause here for a second. Just, let's just pause. Because there's some tension in this statement. Jesus says the command that I have for you is to love. Love each other as I have loved you. Really? That doesn't sound like a hard thing to do. That sounds like a hallmark thing to do, right? That sounds like, yeah, that's a really nice birthday card. That sounds like a great Christmas card. That, you know. That's all that is. That's, that's what this is. But Jesus says, this is my command. Why? What do you think? If you're participating online, put your answer in. If you're watching here, you're with us in person, why do you think Jesus makes it a command To love each other. What do you think? Don't everyone answer at once. You can't shout out all over each other like that. That's not how we work here. What do you think? Why does Jesus make it a command to love each other? Because we belong to him? him? No. For For peace? No. Because it's important. Here's why. Because we don't love each other. He makes it a command because we don't. We think we do, but we don't. And do you know why we don't love each other like Jesus has loved us? Because some people are harder to love than others. Right? Amen? Amen? Some people are harder to love than others. And... I guarantee you, you've thought that about your family at some point in your life. You thought that about your family when you were growing up. You've thought that about your spouse if you've been married. You've thought that about your siblings. You've thought that about your own children. Why are you making it so hard for me to love you right at this moment, right? They are hard to love. And that brings me to the point that we cannot miss. This means this. Don't make the mistake that this command is for someone else to do and not you. If you are, if there are people in your life that you believe are hard to love, there are people in your life who believe the same thing about you, So, I want to give you a time to affirm what Jesus is trying to teach to His disciples and trying to teach to us today. And that is, you need to know this, I am hard to love. Say it with me. I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced you believe it, I am hard to love. Turn to the person you came with. If you're not next to someone, jump into chat. If you're uh, uh, participating online and you're on Facebook or you're on our live stream on our website, jump on the chat and just, just say it. Let's all say it together and let's admit it. This is the problem that we have. I am hard to love. Turn to the person and tell it to them on three. One, two, three. I am hard to love. Now, as you say this, as you say this to the person next to you, person next to you on the couch, or as you put this into chat as you're uh, participating online, you know this is true. But it is so much easier to focus on the idea that actually you probably have a less hard time loving me than I sometimes have loving you, right? That's what we always feel. We feel like the other person is always the problem. And the reason is because other people don't always do what we ask them to do. And our default, our default is to stop at this passage and think, I'm just going to be like Jesus. And I'm going to command you to love me. Which is what Jesus does, right? Jesus commands his disciples, love each other as I have loved you. I'd lo- oh, man, I'd, uh, you know what? I think that only works for Jesus. I am pretty confident that it does not work when we tell other people, God tells you to love me, right? If you'd like to try this, At home this afternoon not at this moment because I want to have a blood-free service okay I want you to tell your spouse or your kids that they're commanded to love you I want you to tell them that I want you to you know what Pastor Brian says that, you know, that we're following in the model of Jesus. Actually, don't bring my name into that. Let's just skip that part. And just tell them, you know what? It's your job to love me. That's my command to you as your husband or as your wife or as your your parents or as as kids speaking to your parents. It's your job, God's command for you to love me. How well do you think that'll work? You think that's going to work well or not so well? Get your emojis in chat, (laughs) thumbs up if you think it's going to go well, thumbs down if you think you're going to need counseling or a trip to the hospital. (laughs) Families may want to command each other, and as a matter of fact, especially when the children become adults, that's oftentimes the default of the parents, is to continue to command And continue to expect those expectations, to continue to demand that if you love me, you will do this. But that can't be what Jesus means, right? It's not. And so Jesus gives us this clarification because Jesus doesn't just command them to love each other, right? He says, I want you to love each other as I have loved you. And how did Jesus love us? Well, we see that in the very next verse. To recap, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And how did he love us? Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's, what's the word, church? Friends. Friends. We show we love God by loving others the way Jesus loves us. And the way Jesus commands us to love others is to love them as friends. Now that's interesting because he's talking to his future family, right? He's talking to the future church. He's talking to God's family. But he calls them friends, He tells them to lay down their lives because that's what you do for friends. And he doesn't say to do it because you're obligated to, because I command you to, but because they're friends. That's the best kind of love you can ever have for a person. Better than a love for spouse, better than a love for kids, better than a love for job. It's love for a friend. Why friend? Well, we see it in the final verses we're going to look at. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I have, that I have learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Now, we're going to leave this verse up here for a second so that you can kind of follow along with what Jesus is actually telling us. This is how friends operate. This is how... Friends who love God together love each other. They choose to obey each other. They choose to obey each other. That's fascinating. Not just help, not just encourage, but obey. Like, you have some kind of command on my life, some kind of call on my life as a friend, That when you ask me for something, I will do my best to deliver it, even if I have to lay down my life. And he says that friends have insider information. Friends know what the master's up to. Servants don't. And that's what Jesus is doing here with his disciples, right? He's telling them, this is God's plan. I'm going to die. I'm going to go away. I'll come back for a little bit, but then I'm going to go away, and I'm not going to be there, so here's how I want you to act in the meantime. He tells them the plan. Friends teach each other. They learn from each other. See, it says, uh, everything I learned from my father made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Do you see that? That's friends learning from each other, teaching each other, giving them jobs that matter, helping them to learn, prioritizing them for important tasks. I'd never ask anyone else to do this, only my closest friends and they prioritize blessing each other. Have you ever tried to give a gift to someone, and you think, well, we have to give them something because they're family, right? We have to, you know, we have to send the card. We have to say something. No matter the relationship, we have to. But when they're a friend, and they're having a birthday, or it's their anniversary, what do we do? We want to bless them. See the difference? Have to versus want to. And so, Jesus' command is to love each other in the way that He loves us, as friends. The God of the universe, who died on a cross for you and has every right to demand your total allegiance, calls you a friend, calls me a friend. And what that means for us is this. Friends stay close when they become friends, or families stay close when they become friends. They'll always be family. You'll have a relationship with a bloodline through adoption. But friends stay, families stay close. When they choose to act and live and love as more than family. As friends. You see, some say that families are closer. But I don't think so. Families are closer because of obligation. They're close because we have obligations. But you don't choose your family. And when you choose For someone to be a friend, you activate a whole world of willingness, not of obligation, but of joyful surrender of what real love is because they're friends. I used to think that when couples would post on their anniversary, you know, they'd go on social media and they'd say, I'd marry my best friend. That's hogwash. What a joke. Come on. No, you married your spouse. But people who can say that, I've come to learn, that's amazing. Not that they married their best friend a number of years ago, but that they're married to their best friend now. Because they're choosing to prioritize that relationship in such a way that's not because of a vow that they made, or not because of an expectation that society has or the church has, but that they're a friend And that they are willingly sharing, these are some of my struggles. These are some of my opportunities. What would it look like in your family if you were best friends with your spouse? No secrets. All the plans on the table, all the dreams on the table, all the goals looked at without being laughed at. You'd know what each other are up to and really thinking. You'd learn from each other. You'd help each other learn even when it's hard. You'd encourage each other. You'd naturally build each other up rather than tear people down. And you'd choose each other for the important work in your life. And you'd prioritize blessing their work and the things that they are called to do. What about if in your family you were friends with your children? I know when they're young, you have set parameters and boundaries, and I get it. I get the, you know, in the face of the, but why, but why, but why, but why? Because I'm your dad! Has a lot of weight, right? We get that. We understand that. And they need that structure. But then they get older what would it be like to be real friends with your children? What if, what would it look like in your family if you were real friends with your parents or your (gasps) in-laws? Been married for over twenty one zero years almost 22 so over 21 years now almost 22 we have a 16 year old I have come to learn what I think all parents need to learn that sometimes parents put expectations on their children to like certain things right we want them to pursue certain things, pursue certain careers, to have certain hobbies, to marry certain people, to have so many grandchildren for us, whatever the number is. But let's face it, those expectations are just things that we prefer. They're not priorities that a friend would place on someone else. I'm not going to tell you that you have to provide so many grandkids for me. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you that you have to look out for me when I'm older. Well, maybe I will, but maybe not quite with that level. We're not going to put those expectations on friends. So, what would it look like to be real friends with your family? What would it look like to be real friends with your parents now that you're an adult? What would it look like to be friends with your kids when they are adults? I remember the moment in my life when my mom switched from just mom to a good, close friend. I was in college, I was in uh, university at the time and we were on the phone because it was important to call home because she sends the care packages, right? (laughs) We lived about three hours away, so I didn't get to see her all the time. So it was kind of a weekly check-in. How are the grades? Yes, yeah, school's going great. Yeah, yep, my roommates are fine, and so on. We were just having a conversation about how different it was growing up in a small town in, in rural northern Ontario and then going to Toronto and being in school there. And, and I said, you know, one of the things I, I wish we had done differently as a family was that I wish you had encouraged me to do the things that I liked to do. And what I meant by that was that if my mom wanted me to be part of those things, right, go to church, which I like doing, I like being part of youth group, I liked, uh, you know, serving and that sort of thing, and I liked doing well in school, and uh, I, I liked all of those things, then my mom would be bending her schedule, and she's a single mom, right, so she's bending her schedule, she's moving everything she can, heaven and earth, so to speak, in order to get me to those kinds of places, get me on the youth retreats and those kind of fun things. But when it came to sports or just hanging out with my friends in town, my mom was incredibly reluctant to do that. Even if they were friends from church. Most of them weren't, which maybe wasn't, was the reason why she didn't want me hanging out with these other kids from school all the time. I remember one of the things that I would tell her was that, yeah, my, my friends have a Nintendo game system. Right? And that was the thing back when it was first released. And they're playing these new games. And my mom's, that's a waste of time. I'm not taking you. And when it came to basketball, we'd have this weekly pickup group at our high school that was run by the, the phys ed department, and it was intense basketball. It was often better than the <laughs> than the school games that we played against other schools. It was tough. And I always wanted to go to that and my mom never wanted to drive ever. And I said to her, as long as it was something that you thought was good for me, then you were all in. But if you weren't interested, you didn't support that. That's a risky conversation, right? And there was a long pause on the phone. And my mom said these words that moved her from just the mom category to friend. She said, you're right, and I'm sorry. That was not the thing I was going to hear. I thought I was going to hear. I was just kind of saying, you know, I I mean, it's okay. I mean, I've I've moved out. Like, I, I, I live at dorm now. I can go play basketball anytime I want. I can play video games anytime I want. Like, this isn't a big deal. It was just the way, you know, I wish that was different at home. And she just apologized for not seeing that. And that's when she moved from the mom category to the friend category. Because what could she have said? How dare you? Don't you know that as a single mom, I've done the best that I can? And who do you think you are? And she would have been absolutely right. But she didn't. She did what friends do. And by acting as a friend, she's been a friend ever since. She's been a friend to my wife, Krista, which is so weird that, you know, in-law relationship is just perfect in that regard. Like, that's the kind of story that you can have with your family. You can be more than family because you can build friendships inside your family and that is going to keep you close. So you can do things like being interested in what your friends are interested in. They just happen to be family. So if they like video games, you like video games. If they like fashion, get interested in fashion. If they like going to yard sales, they like going to yard sales. It was really ironic. If you check on my Facebook page uh, a little bit later today, there was a thing that I quoted from a couple of years ago where I said, how do I know my wife loves me? Because she's not making me go to the Downton Abbey, uh, Downton Abbey movie. How do I know? Because she's not making me do that. That's the sign of a friend. I would have gone if she had asked. I may not have liked it, and I would have been clear about that, but I would have gone. Instead, she went with someone else. Friends can talk to people and not have to worry... Friends can talk to each other and not have to worry about, gosh, that was just rude, and how dare you, and don't you know who I am? And they take each other's feelings into consideration. Friends are more interested in the why, not just the how. They're they're interested in why they think something, why they do something, and they want to help. They will always, always, always mobilize to help someone in their time of need, even if distance has separated them. That doesn't mean we honor sinful choices or destructive behavior. But let's face it. Sometimes families act because they're obligated to act. Friends always act because they get to. It's an opportunity to be a friend. There is a time when this doesn't work, and that is you can't force the other person to be your friend. All you can control is yourself. Again, you can't command, you're not God. But it is interesting that in spite of the fact that God is clearly the head of His family over all creation, over all reality, He is the King of kings, He is the Lord of lords, He chooses to call us friends. We are His servants, we are His family, we are His possession, but He calls us friends. Still family, but friends. And I think... He does that because he knows that it's friendship that gives you a better framework for handling conflict, handling sin, disciplining your kids when they're younger, coming alongside your parents when they're older and they need some course correction in life, they need to be right with God. You can do that through a friendship more than you can through a a family relationship. Because friends are the people that we're willing to go to the end of the line with. And families, we're just obligated to be there at the, you know, when it works. God's family is based on, not obligation, but opportunity. It's based on friendship. And His family can be the perfect model for our family. So as we wrap up today... Be a friend to your family, your spouse, your kids if you have them, your parents if they're still with us, your extended family. Try before thinking of them as family to think of them as friends. Because families stick together when they choose to love each other as more than family. They stick together when they choose to love each other as friends. There is usually some questions that we give out at the end of the message, but I don't think I need to write them down so that you'll remember. But here's your homework if you choose to accept it. How will you build better friendships within your family this week? How will you build a better friendship with the people in your family this week? How will you do it with your extended family if you want a part two? How will you build a better friendship with the people in your family? Let me pray for you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray that you would help us and that your holy spirit now would speak that you would guide because the people in our family are sometimes hard to love whether there are immediate family whether there are extended family whether there are relatives they are hard to love and we are hard to love we know that we confess that And so, Lord, would you help us to move beyond the obligations that we have to the members of our family, to the people in our family? And would you help us to move to where you command us to be? To love each other, to lay down our lives, because our family members are also our friends. Would you help them Would you help us to be a friend to them, to choose to be a friend to them? And may the way that you are a friend to us guide what we need to do this week to build better friendships in our families. Lord, this is so hard, so easy to say, so hard to do, and so I pray that you would give us faith to act, that we would hear your voice and only your voice alone, and that you would guide us So that our families remain close no matter what they face. Because we've chosen to be friends. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.